9125 12th Street was the address of the Economy Printing Company, a small business in the heart of downtown Detroit. By day, it was an unassuming storefront, but at night, the second-floor rooms came alive as an unlicensed after-hours club known to locals as the Blind Pig, an unflattering reference to Detroit law enforcement. Such establishments were not uncommon in 1960s Detroit, and occasional police raids were just an ordinary part of doing business. But the raid that happened at the Blind Pig on a sultry July night in 1967 sparked a riot that lasted for four days, resulting in 43 deaths, 7,200 arrests, and 2,500 businesses looted and burned. It was the catalyst that propelled the city into a downward spiral from which it still suffers 50 years later. But over the past few years, there are signs that Detroit may be turning around, and those who are leading the charge are learning that it takes a village to raise a city. Today we'll hear from Professor Joe Bauer and special guest Peter Scher about a new case entitled J.P. Morgan Chase, Invested in Detroit. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Professor Joe Bauer is an expert on corporate strategy, organization, and leadership, and he's kind of a living legend here at Harvard Business School. Flattery there, Joe. Uh, Peter Scher is chairman of the Mid-Atlantic Region and global head of corporate responsibility for J.P. Morgan Chasing Company. He also serves as a member of the firm's operating committee. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You're coming fresh from the classroom where this case was just taught, so I'll ask you a little bit about that. I want to hear sort of first impressions, first time teaching the case. Um, but let me just ask you, I mean, obviously people know Detroit has been in the headlines usually for all the wrong reasons for a long time now. And as I read this case, I thought, wow, you know, this is the beginning of something big and it's been noted in other places. So we're going to dig into that. Joe, if you could start just by sort of setting the stage for us, can you set the case up? Who's the protagonist and what's on their mind? The protagonist in the case is Jamie Dimon, the chairman and chief executive of J.P. Morgan. And uh, it's, it, it's slightly contrived because he's working with a team, but we're asking the students to think through what J.P. Morgan has done so far in Detroit, identify the lessons, and then uh, using those lessons somewhat as criteria, uh, decide whether they would recommend that Diamond take the program into other cities. Yeah. What, what prompted you to write about this? I was talking with Jamie Dimon about some work on governance that he had done with Warren Buffett, and he just started talking about Detroit <laughs> as his style. He said, you really ought to find out what we're doing in Detroit. And as I learned about it, it was just the kind of thing that we're trying to understand, which is where a company takes its skill set and applies it to a set of problems that are not normally thought of as the scope of business, then they do it mm. as an investment. Jamie Dimon's very clear. He's investing in Detroit. He's not giving charity to Detroit. Yeah, and that comes across really clearly in the case. Peter, Jamie might be the sort of uber protagonist in this case, but you're more like the guy on the ground uh, helping to lead this effort in Detroit. Did you consider other, like, you, you kind of started with sort of the worst case scenario. Did you look at other cities? No, it, it didn't start, it didn't start from the idea of let's go fix a city. It really started with, is there anything we can do to help in Detroit? And as we got into it, you know, and as we have, uh, as we have worked through this, particularly over the last 
now, you know, four plus years, we realize there's a model that we think could be applied in other places. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, we'll, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that too. The The situation in Detroit, as you got started, uh, the case talks about the blight. I was really amazed when I looked at one of the exhibits that showed a, a sort of an aerial view of the blight in the city. I mean, that was an obvious place Huge. to start. Yes. I mean, th- look, th- there were, you know, in in... Jamie often gets asked, what's the one thing we can do? And there's never one thing. Yeah. You know, you had blight. You had you had no uh, real estate market, per se. The population was continuing to decline. So all of the kind of objective criteria for uh, urban growth was, was absent. But blight was a huge, both symbolic and real sign of the deterioration. And, and, and the mayor and had just set up the Detroit Land Bank. And so we made a number of early investments in addressing blight, particularly using technology. Mm. We created with a local firm an app that people could go out and take pictures of blighted properties and feed that information back into the Detroit Land Bank so they can make better decisions. It's called Motor City Mapping. It was so successful that we have now taken that technology to three cities in Ohio, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. And again, part of the theory was if you can resolve blight in Detroit, you can resolve it anywhere. And so, you know, blight was a big early focus. Uh, residential development was a big early focus, commercial development, skills, small business. We were really focused as the study lays out on what are some areas that we have some unique skills and expertise and resources that we can bring to bear. Yeah. And this was not something that you did alone. I mentioned in the intro that it takes a village to raise a city. So who else has been involved with you as you guys have gone down this path? There were a huge number of anchor institutions, mm-hmm. nonprofit and for-profit in the city, and they were all talking to each other, yeah. and they were working together, and they were focused on specific outcomes, and we said, look, we want to be a part of it, and we think there are certain things that we can do to help accelerate the the growth and the revitalization of the city. So you didn't come in just sort of like, hey, we're J.P. Morgan. Right. Well, let, this let was, us tell yes. you how to fix this problem. So, so the, you know, if you think about the two big hurdles, you know, we had never done this before. So internal to J.P. Morgan, there's a little skepticism because we knew if we were going to succeed, we had to put people on the ground. We had – and not just philanthropic people. We had to put business people who knew how to, you know, put together – you know, loan funds who knew HR and mm-hmm. finance and strategy. So you're taking people out of revenue-generating roles for weeks at a time to say, we're going to go work on this Detroit project. And so everyone was enthusiastic at first. But, you know, you worry that after a while, people be like, well, that's gr- that whole Detroit thing is great. <laughs> but, you know, we got a P&L to meet. But yeah. just the opposite happened. And the other thing, to your point, is are we going to be accepted you know, are we? Is this a bunch of Wall Street bankers coming in to tell Detroit what to do? And we were very intentional in terms of working with our folks that we could not come in with New York answers to Detroit problems. We had to listen. Mm-hmm. We had to understand because, frankly, if they didn't weren't if they didn't have the ideas on the ground and the buy on the ground, there's not a lot we can do to substitute. And so it's been an extraordinary collaboration. Just listen. It's from a business perspective, it's always good to remind people. You know, listening is a very important quality to the development of a successful business. Yeah. Joe, let me ask you, in your work with so many corporations over the years, corporate social responsibility is something that's talked about a lot. 
Um, and I think it's something that people are fairly cynical about. Uh, you know, we, we particularly we, we think a lot of companies are saying that they're that they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, this seems like a different model. This is a, a is this approach uh, in your mind sort of a turning point in the way companies are thinking about it? Well, it, it seems to me there are two different things. That there are companies that really think quite seriously about how they can use some of their profitability to do good yeah. in various ways. And that's fine. And uh, if they think the more seriously they think about it, the better. But w what uh, Lynn Payne and I have been really very interested in are the companies who, as part of their strategy for doing their core business, think about how they can use their skill set to uh, mitigate fundamental problems and at the same time build their business so it's sustainable. It's not a question of do we have surplus for charity. It's this is a way by which we will invest. We'll make the city better and that's going to help us because we're a bank in that city. Yeah. Well, You're not doing it just to be altruistic. It's good for business, Peter. So, is that how you yeah. guys look well, at it? Absolutely. I mean, it's good for business specifically, but I also want to make a broader point. If you think about this, you know, kind of the period post-financial crisis, we have a lot of strains and divisions in society right now, particularly among the lower class and the middle class. And, and the economic inequality is real. And not to make this political, but you look at the, the elements that led to President Trump's election. You look at the elements that led to the UK's decision to exit the European Union. In, in our view, I mean, I oversee public policy for work. All of these things are being driven by these social and economic divisions within society. Those divisions are bad for us. Underlying the challenge we have in the sort of political and policy world right now is the, this economic division. And so we have a lot to lose mm. by not trying to address those. And if we can begin to, to bring more people into the economy, to create more opportunity, to make people feel like the system is not stacked against them and to make sure the system is not stacked against them, we think long-term for society and for a business – that's a really important thing we should be doing. And at a time that government, you know, uh, the professor made this point in the class, you know, business people like to, to complain about the inability of government to get things done. Well, then you know what? Get in the game yeah. and be a part of fixing those problems because your company is dependent on and your future is dependent on a more stable uh, society and more stable economy. Yeah, I, I, and, and that's certainly what we've been looking at here at the Business School with our U.S. Competitiveness Project over the last five, six years. A lot of deep dive on that. I'm also curious about but, what uh, is this... Brian, but a lot of what we hear is we checked into this hotel. The service is bad. Mm. Uh, the food is lousy. This is bad. And then we check out. And, yeah. and we're moving our business to where the, it's a better hotel. That says that a lot of what we're hearing, people that are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Yeah. Well, and I think that, I mean, what you just said, Professor, I mean, at the when, when even before Detroit, when we shifted, as you talked about in this case study, our efforts, we made a decision, either we're going to be seen as part of the problem or part of the solution. And, you know, even if we weren't solving all the world's problems, which we, we don't, you want to be, you as a business, you want to not only be seen as part of the solution, you actually want to be part of the solution. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, things are going in the right direction, but I'm sure it hasn't been all wine and roses, right? There are issues and challenges that you've faced along the way. What would you 
tell somebody who's thinking about doing this in another city? What kind of advice would you give? So you need to make sure that there's the right kind of collaboration. You know, one of the questions you look at, one of the, one of the, or our criteria is particularly you think about Detroit, you have just the sheer size of the city. You could fit Boston and San Francisco into Detroit and still have plenty of room to spare. So there are a lot of neighborhoods that need attention. You can't fix them all. So do you have the do you have strong political leadership? Do you have the business community, the nonprofit community? Do you have community buy-in? Mm. And do you have this kind of sense of collaboration? It is very difficult. It would be very difficult for any firm, I think, to go in. And are there others who are part of this? And I think this is something important, important point that was made in the case study. I mean, it wasn't like J.P. Morgan Chase showed up in Detroit and the skies parted and everything was fine. There was a lot of work that went on beforehand. And we said we want to be part of it. Yeah. So we want to join your efforts. Are there cities that are willing to do that hard work, make those tough choices? If they are, there's... A whole lot you could do. Yeah. There's and a whole lot you can do. Sounded from the case like Mayor Duggan has been a great partner in this whole thing. Extraordinary. Because there's a this is not your typical political conversation. There's a lot of back and forth. He'll say, you know, here's a problem I have. How do we actually work together to solve it? And there's a big difference between that and hey, can you can you write a check to fund this next project? And I think it's a, you know, again, we were talking about this in the class. If society and the political leadership expect business to play a bigger role, which they should, then they also have to adapt to how they work with business. And simply saying, write a check for my, you know, favorite project is not the way to do. Bring them to the table. Let them be part of the conversation. We heard when we were writing the case, we heard from both sides, guys in the mayor's office saying, what's really interesting now is I can pick up the phone and call someone at J.P. Morgan about a problem, about specific, because they know they've got knowledge that can really help me. The reverse was also true. The people in the bank were kind of thrilled that someone from the mayor's office was calling and asking for what they knew. Isn't that amazing? And uh, it, it's, uh, it was really powerful. One of our kind of rules of thumb now is if the only thing we're doing is writing a check, that's considered a failure. Yeah. So when you actually take, and I think this is the professor's point, when you take this business-like approach to solving these problems, you know, the scale that you can get to is enormous. You know, back to your point about um, the excitement within J.P. Morgan about this, I would imagine that this is helping you to kind of rebrand J.P. Morgan to the millennial generation who are going to be so important to the future of your company, right? They want to be involved in, a, in an important way in these kind of things. You know, it's interesting. I didn't think of this certainly when we started this, but it is a big part of how we recruit on campuses. And millennials, you know, look, they want to be part of firms like ours. They may even want to make a lot of money, but they also want to feel like they're having an impact. And when you tell them you can join a firm in which you would have an opportunity to you know, be a part of this program and go help a community, it's a very powerful thing. And I think we're starting to look at it, but most we do a debrief with everyone who's been on the service corps, and they will tell us it's been the most impactful and meaningful professional experience. And our odds of retaining that talent, you know, that will pay for itself just you know, beyond anything else in terms of the cost to a company in terms of lost talent. So it, it's I think the benefits to the firm across so many uh, uh, criteria are just enormous. Yeah, great hidden benefit. Yeah. So Joe, you just taught the class for the first time. Any surprises, uh, unexpected things happen? 
I was really pushing them very hard that, that this was unique. It turned out that this was an advanced management class, that one of the guys in the class had a small mortgage bank in California, uh-huh. and they'd done the same thing. <laughs> so that was fun. I mean, that's what's so great about our classes is that somebody in the class really knows a lot about what. Yeah. Peter, how about you? What were your It's been a great day so far and, and and I think it's for me it's great to actually talk to people from other companies and because part of what we think about now is how do we scale what we're doing and there's only so much we can do on our own, but can we partner? Well, I think there might be a B case in the offing, Joe. <laughs> well, right? there is a B case which follows up, but I won't tell you what's in there. We'll have you back on at that time. <laughs> Another time. Peter, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys. Thanks. If you enjoyed hearing about this case, subscribe to Cold Call on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We post new episodes twice a month, and we'd love to hear your thoughts, so please post a review. I'm Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call, an official podcast of Harvard Business School.